I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. <laughs> 2019. What an amazing year for me personally and professionally. A breakthrough year, really, for Convo by Design. We recorded from the home studio, for sure. But we were on the road more this year. It was absolutely amazing. These design road trips took us, took me, took you, all over Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada. We, what I thought would be fun is just sort of a look back at uh, all the places we've been this year. We started with a trip to Las Vegas for the 2019 edition of KBiz, Kitchen and Bath Industry Show. If you haven't been to KBiz before, a word of advice, bring comfortable shoes. This is one of the biggest design-focused events I- I've ever attended. I-, I must have walked four miles a day. I got an a- opportunity to see every new Kitchen and Bath product known to man, I'm sure. I talked to so many amazing people. I, I wanted to share a chat and review one with Billy Peel from Mocket. This is a small Southern California company with some really creative architectural solutions for age-old challenges. I, I thought you might enjoy hearing from him again. Everything needs power now. Right. Everything plugs Absolutely. in. So how do you guys manage the process with 5,000 SKUs? How are designers using the product? So what originally started as Indesk Solutions for Office has now sort of transcended into different market segments. Now hospitality, residential, there's a, there's a need for power everywhere. Now that our mobile devices are sort of dictating the way we work and how we work and we're always connected. So, so but the, the irony of it is though, even in a wireless world, you know, we have our laptops, we have our phones, um, that's how we stay connected, but they need to be charged. And so even in this wireless world, you have wires and you have wire management issues. So like you said, you're always going to want to keep those wires nice and tidy behind the desk, under the desk, down a table leg, anywhere where it's going to be out of sight. Um, we have hundreds of different SKUs for, you know, like everything from wire stays, wire molds that are sold by the foot and cut to length to like little straps loops, hooks, widgets that are like for every nook and cranny. So From Las Vegas, it was off to Modernism Week in Palm Springs. I had the chance to catch up with a ton of remarkable and simply creative people. And this year I had the honor of recording from the SIA, Save Iconic Architecture Party at the Cary Grant Estate in Palm Springs. Catching up with some old friends and making some new ones, here's what that sounded like. First, with longtime friend of the show, Patrick Dragonette. Patrick was the president of the La Cienega Design Quarter and owner of Dragonette Limited, his showroom in said design district. We covered a lot of ground here. I think that, I think that every, I, I, I personally believe that you cannot be successful today without understanding and honoring the past. And I think any I think any good designer understands that, and that those those uh, forebearers of design, our they're our educators. So you have to study and understand the past in order to be successful in the present, and and for something hopefully that lives into the future. So I think that. Um, for me, it's always about the designer. It's always whether it's the furniture designer or, I, you know, I have crushes on people and I have crushes on their work. And so I love that we're getting to indulge this sort of thing. We've got a lot of great people this year. I mean, Alex Papa Christidis is coming back. Um, you know, he's a New York based designer. He did it about five years ago 
And so he is coming back to, he's doing a room in honor of Jeffrey Benison. Um, Jeff Andrews, who is a LA-based designer, I'm very excited because he's chosen my showroom to do a Billy Haynes tribute, which is, anybody who knows me or my, no, my showroom knows that's a perfect fit. Um, Pate Lau, who is from New York, who has just transitioned with a little pied -a -terre here in Los Angeles, she is doing a David Hicks window. Um, Nicole Fuller, who is from New York, is creating a tribute to Henri Samuel. Um, and the list, it goes on and on. It's very, very exciting. I'm thrilled about the people are, that are participating. And it's just going to be a really great, it's going to be a great event. Let me back away for a second. Here's my, here's my theory. I have seen L.A. raise in stature culturally, socially, architecturally, dramatically in the last five years to the point where I feel comfortable saying Los Angeles is a world-class city. Oh, absolutely. I would not disagree. And part of that, to me, really is not just Hollywood, fashion, car culture, the, the, the price of our estates, but really the work that's, that's being done. And I think, I think our designers, and I guess for me, you know, I look back every year when I get the AD100, I, 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 I go through it and I get really mad. I get, I get, I get, I get really because mad. Because it's so East Coast. Yes. Centric. And it has been. It's like, <laughs> great. Guess what? West Coast got 11 designers included this. Really, 11 designers. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. No, that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. I would, I would argue that Well, it's given actually, the fact that AD was a West Coast publication in its inception and where and where are they now and I look I get it and by the way it's their opinion and they're completely entitled to it and I'm and I I would be hard I, I think at the end of the day those things are just kind of they are okay they are you but, know they are but, but what, they do mean something they have currency you're right so yeah and from I that from that point of view I think you're right so that being said the state of what's coming out of LA and and by the way I, I asked the question because I put I put LCDQ and legends firmly in that conversation because what's coming out of the quarter is very interesting. I do think if you were to ask any New York editor, publisher, anywhere in the anywhere in the country, possibly the world, they would tell you that yes, the LCDQ and the Legends event is without question the most anticipated event on the design calendar in any calendar year. So that that says a lot, and I think that I think that part of uh, part of the job of a good interior designer is that is that guidance and education, you know, and that's how you avoid an all an all one source stop kind of shop, and you and you you educate a person as to why you're worth what you charge because what you are going to give them is unique and special, and you're going to share a lot more than they ever pay for. <laughs> And you know, I, they, you become a psychiatrist and a shrink. Um, I've been through all kinds of stuff with clients at this point, and and that's okay because I'm actually a good listener and I'm a I'm a good talker and I'm pretty smart. I don't know why, but when it comes to matters of the heart and and emotional things, I 
I kind of know what I'm talking about, and it helps. Next was a really fun chat with Ron Woodson and Jamie Rummerfield, the creative and intellectual force behind Woodson and Rummerfield's House of Design and co-founders of SIA, Save Iconic Architecture. So no, anyway, we're going to go with the voice. You've been doing a lot of talking. We're at the we're at the SIA, Save Iconic Architecture event at Modernism Week in Palm Springs. I, I love the event that you guys hold every year. You do a remarkable job. Thank you. The background and the why, which is so important. Tell me about the why. Well, we started a nonprofit organization called Save Iconic Architecture, and it, we call it SIA Projects or SIA Projects. And it's very near and dear to our hearts. We are big advocates of architectural preservation. And in Southern California, we're losing so many wonderful properties and um, with all this demolition and construction that's happening at a rapid rate, we're seeing a lot of our iconic pieces of architecture disappearing. Disappearing. And you know, we started this three years ago, but this has been a passion of ours for many, many years. We're here tonight at Villa Paradiso. It's a historic property in Palm Springs. It was built in 1928 by architect Alva Hicks in a Moorish and Spanish exotic style. So for Palm Springs, that's very rare. So you think of modern architecture, but this is a Spanish estate and it's four acres um, of sprawling grounds and there's nothing like this anymore, even in Palm Springs. And we're really advocating for it to be preserved and um, saved for generations to come. It's actually the largest residential estate in Palm Springs. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it, it's funny. You go outside, and, and we're going to show some images of it. It is, it is sweeping. Yeah. It's really interesting, too. So whose home was this? It was originally a director's home. And ironically, um, I guess it's notorious that Cary Grant lived here as well. And we love that part of the story. Is He lived at the pool house, which is where so we where are standing right, right here. And um, he would come here many, many years to visit his uh, friends who lived in the main house, and they built this house pretty much for Cary Grant because he was always at their place here at Villa Paradiso. And the whole Hollywood region, you guys must absolutely love this. A hundred percent. This is Hollywood to the max, and what shapes a heritage is its culture, and if we keep erasing our culture, our Hollywood culture, then what makes LA? That is our culture. If that wasn't enough, I had the chance to catch up with Peter Gursky interior designer and set decorator responsible for the look of Will and Grace. Like on this show, on any other multi-camera show, I would be running around shopping and doing all the other stuff, but I have a buyer on this show, so that takes the onus off of me. I can focus on the super creative things, and then like if we have a hospital set, my buyer goes out and finds everything, and we go go over pictures and do approvals, but uh, we just add people to it because... Now there's no prep time at all. This is also an interesting project because it's a reboot yeah. of an already successful show. Yeah. Did you feel any influence from the first version? Did you feel absolutely. any pressure? No, no, absolutely, and pressure. I think pressure from the fans because there was so much fan interest in the show coming back and they're really attentive fans. You know, they really are invested in the characters and and what the show looks like and what uh, Will and Grace's apartment looks like and what's in it. Um, and then also I was uh, influenced, of course, by Melinda Ritz, who was the first set decorator 
and I was her assistant, and now I'm the set decorator. So when we approached reassembling the set, now I think everyone knows the story by now, but uh, the set was on display at Emerson College for 10 years behind glass walls, like a giant dollhouse. I mean, the whole thing. There was even candy in the candy dish, sat there for 10 years uh, because they had the producers, Max Mushnick and David Cohen, had had, had, had given Emerson an endowment. It's their, uh, it's their alma mater. So the set was there for 10 years. And then finally, uh, Emerson said, well, you have to take it back because we're tired of it or something. I don't know. So it sat in storage for about a year. And then they figured out doing the get out and vote um, political ad. Well, non try to be a non-political ad, but it was funny. Will and Grace funny. But that was the first time the cast had been together since they'd done the show. And the chemistry was amazing. They'd They'd, they pulled the set, this set that's 10 years old, and we stuck it in the basement at CBS. It was totally top secret. And they had a top secret audience of 100 people, although to say it was pretty impressive industry people. Norman Lear was there. But when they moved, the, they had a makeshift curtain, like Mickey and Judy in the barn. And when they pulled it aside and the cast was there, it was an amazing moment because the audience didn't know it was going to be them. There was a gasp and then wild applause. Finally, after the SIA party, it was off to El Paseo for an amazing afternoon at the Cambria Surfaces showroom. Here are a few of the uh, of the highlights, including Adele Siegelman talking about her book uh, about noted Palm Springs designer Arthur Elrod. Arthur Elrod was the most successful interior designer in Palm Springs. So he came out here first in the late 1940s. He worked at the new Bullock's Palm Springs department store. He was there for about six years. Doing, doing what? A junior decorator. Up in the f- second floor, there was the village's first elevator, and it took you up to the home furnishings department. And that was the only place in town where you could buy the bedding and the accessories and the linens, everything you needed to furnish a house. That was it. So he met everyone. He met all of his future clients there. And he, and he was, it was a one-horse town. He was the only one. He was. Well, there were others, but no one was doing it like him. Well, and nobody had an inside track like him. Right. That's and then he went to San Francisco for a couple of years, met his future business partner, and three of them came down in 1954 to open Arthur Elrod Limited. Why did they come back? Why did he come back? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's something about being a big fish in a small pond. Plus, you know, Palm Springs was so sophisticated. Everyone who was here on vacationing, they were coming from San Francisco or Chicago. You know, this was not a podunk vacation town. It was a really a very sophisticated resort. And I think his style sort of meshed with that. Two parts of the same question. What do you like? What do you like about his style and what do you dislike? Um, I'd like, someone called it warm hospitality and cool sophistication. I love that, you know, after a few years, it was mostly custom. Every single thing, every detail, they had custom made, mostly by sources in Los Angeles, who are interestingly still in business. Really? Yes. Um, And uh, what I I don't like, I don't know, you know, I just sort of ignored some of the early stuff where he was using his clients' antiques. It was that sort of called French provincial. It was like a lot of, yeah, exactly, a lot of, you know, heavy oak furniture and plaid 
upholstery and drapes that matched the couch. That was not my favorite, so I just sort of ignored it and concentrated on the stuff that I liked. And there was plenty of that. That was so great. Okay, this is Dan Foley. When you're a designer, you've got to be creative. You've got to be quick. Yeah. You've got to be... I still have to do my job. Yeah. And that's more than just pretending to be something or someone that they're looking for. Um, my, when, I, I still get people who stop me all the time over that show in particular. And, and they say, oh, how was it? How is it doing that? How is it? Um, especially at markets, you know, designers. Everybody wants to be on TV, right? Um, and I always say, it's very simple. I have, for the couple of years it's been since the show aired, um, I have one word answer for everybody, then and now. Brutal. Brutal was the word. Um, do I regret doing it? No. Would I do it again? No. Really? Okay, yeah. so if you got in the Way Way Back machine and you mm-hmm. had a, it got you exposure. Yes. It, it, it and might. a huge way for me in particular because I did not go into it expecting NBC to make me a star. The other designers I was on with all just sat there waiting for the silver platter. And I knew what my job was for them and how to then use that appearance for myself. So I was prepared and I was working my butt off every day, even while I was there working. The other issue was that the show, you know, reality shows get filmed in six weeks, eight weeks tops, four months. Four months it took to create the show. And that was part of the brutalness of the experience. It was awful. but I did what I did. I also went in knowing I could win this show, but I don't have to. I knew I have a great agent and manager, and we literally sat down and mapped it out. Where do you want to be at this stage of the filming, this stage, this stage, this stage? And I got more out of that show probably than every other designer combined. See, that's so smart now. That's so smart. You know what I don't understand? I don't understand why that mentality that thought process that that it's it was deliberate and mm-hmm. it was purposeful yes does i love i started this podcast i do this full time because i love being around designers and architects i'm not a designer nor an architect i just i love i love everything about it i love being around designers and architects mm. but it is very frustrating for me having done this podcast for a very long time and talking to a lot of designers and architects mm-hmm. too there the trade is so it's it's social media is not handled well for the most part no oh i'm so glad you said that there yes. is there is there is very little in the in the way of of content development for oneself um, i think mm-hmm. i think a lot of what designers are doing now is they're still waiting for the magazines to cover isn't that interesting yeah that they are and they're all holding out i get look i speak a lot to the trade about the business of design i'm asked to speak at the markets and whatnot i um, just did it in dallas and in las vegas uh, in january and those i get the same questions still how do you get published and how do you get on tv oh and how do you get licenses and you know what's interesting is i tell everybody forget about magazines today forget about it even the magazines that are left as wonderful as they are and i love magazines but Many of them are down to six issues now instead of 12. Their editorial now is backed up a year, where it used to be only a few months. Um, they know what they're going to do, and there's, only, and there's a certain group of designers, for the most part, who get featured. Forget about it. Don't go there. Don't waste your time. 
build a social media that is, for lack of a better word, because it is so overused today, which is authentic. And there are very few people doing that. Everybody's talking about it. I think social media, for me, I've been in business for 32 years running my own firm. I license, I have a huge number of licenses that you know we sell through the, through the markets and to the trade uh, and to retailers. I do it directly on television for the Evine Shopping Channel. Um, I, I write, I, I've written monthly articles for Palm Springs Life and another magazine for years. Um, I've, I have a lot of content, let's put it that way. What I find most social media content is, is fake, uh, it's phony, um, it's a waste of time. It's more about, aren't I fabulous, as opposed to, look at the work I'm doing. So I always say, these people who are posting every day and multiple times a day, they're not, that's not what you're going after. The same rules apply today that applied five years ago, which is post twice a week. Post twice a week and make it real, make it honest. Um, right now at market, I've finally gotten a past that point in licensing meetings where they don't they don't want to know what TV I'm doing today. You know, are you Ellen DeGeneres? No, I'm not Ellen DeGeneres. Um, but what they want to know is how many followers do you have, which you did. We're now at a point where they don't want to know the followers so much as they want to know how many of them are real. And we finally reached that point. So when I go to a market today to do an appearance, if I'm asked to do a panel, which I love, I love feeding off of other people and talking about our experiences. I have to be honest, at this point, I will not appear on a panel with a blogger. I won't because if the only thing you have to offer the conversation is how many followers you have, then we have nothing to talk about. We have nothing in common. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what great jobs you're working on today. Show me your portfolio. I don't care how many followers you have because there's nothing more inauthentic than thinking that's what matters to a designer or to someone who has come hoping to get some sort of information or inspiration about how to go to the next level or how to build their business. And really, I've always been a firm believer as well that there's enough to go around. The universe only expands. It has never contracted. It never will. Your client is not my client and vice versa. There is nothing wrong. I can share everything I've done. I, I begin every speech that I make with the same phrase. I've been very lucky. I've been fortunate. I've made a lot of money in this industry. I've also lost a lot of money in this industry. And maybe some of those experiences can help you to avoid some of those pitfalls. But really, my job as a speaker to both the everyone at large, the consumer at large, the do-it-yourself people, as well as the business of design to other designers, is to maybe, at best, to inspire you to take that step, whether it's to do it yourself or to demand a better client or demand respect from someone you're working with already. And that's really what I do beyond my day-to-day -day design work that I do for my clients or for my licensing partners is about inspiring other people in the industry to do more. Before I left Modernism Week, I, I had a chance to make a stop by the Christopher Kennedy compound and spoke with Christopher about his project this year. And perhaps what gives ours more of an era, uh, uh, an air of camaraderie is that these people are not competitors. You know, the, the reason people often ask me why I don't have local designers. Well, 
I mean, to me, Palm Springs is a world-class resort town. And I started it, you know, five years ago after 10 years of, you know, of, 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 um, of having my business and and it's just kind of you know big uh, excuse me my my voice is gone after this weekend but after ten years of just kind of you know having my head in the sand and working and you know getting my 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 you know, um, firm established I kind of came up for air and realized I'm doing okay like let's get back to the town that's given me so much I just called world class designers and because they're not competing uh, I think that's what really gives it this air of com- of camaraderie maybe in a town where you know if you're in Dallas and the person in the room next to you is your direct competition. Well, that that is going to have a different vibe just by nature. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So and hopefully they do learn from each other in, in that you know that situation. But and, and it's a it's a major undertaking. And I'm curious, how do you manage? How do you manage the the, the show house? And and a retail. Yeah. And a design firm. Yeah. It's great. Right. It's the goal. Yeah. How do you manage it? Uh, it depends on the day. Sometimes I do better than others. Uh, you know, I think I, I look a bit worse for the wear. Probably aged ten years and five. I've gained about twenty pounds. So balance is definitely something that I'm still working on, as I think all of us are in our lives. So if I had to tell you the truth, really, it's my clients who have paid the price. Um, you know, because for this last two months, for sure, and even for the whole four to five months of the process, it's hard for me to work. Um, you know, I've been fired by clients. I've lost clients because of it. So I'm not one to complain, but I do also want to put that out there that if people think, oh, you know, this is so great for Christopher and it's just all fun and, you know, and his name is in the, in the headlines. Well, it, it has come at a cost, uh, you know, just so. But it's still my pleasure and honor. Yeah. I, I, I love that you say that, though, because it's important. Yeah. And it's important to know, you know, I think all too often, you know, in in five plus years of doing mm-hmm. the podcast, it's really interesting to see different perspectives yeah. on the same business. Two people can see the business completely differently. Yeah. You know, and one of the things is you talk about Palm Springs being a world class resort mm-hmm. town, and it is. Yeah. And L.A., and outlying areas of which Palm Springs is part is a world-class design and architecture community. Oh, absolutely. And you people take this really seriously. <laughs> this is a contact sport. And we have some of the best in the business out here doing this. And that's why I, I think it is so important. And it's, it's important to know, too, that it's not, it's not a hobby. Right. It's not a pastime. No. And there is a cost mm-hmm. to doing it. And it's important to know that. You know, you talk to the designers, why do you do it? There's a cost associated. Yeah. There's a lot of time. Absolutely. Associated. And if you do it right, there's there's both of those things. Right. But the the plus side is you have something that is gonna last. Mm-hmm. And you have something to show and you have something to add to a book that tells That's who right. you are. Absolutely. So backing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I love this because you and I haven't had a chance to really sit down no, not since, in a while. since 2012. Yeah. So the Small Space Big Style was my first design house. Yeah. That was the first design house I, I produced. Mine. Oh, yeah. Was that, And it was my first show house I was in. Was it, is that right? Yeah. Didn't show it. <laughs> I, still, I, I still show people copies of the magazine. Oh. You know what's really interesting about a design house? If it can stand the test of time. Yeah. If it can stand the test of time. And when designers make bold statements mm-hmm. and make bold choices and it stands the test of time, you really have something special. Mm-hmm. Do you have 
any advice that you give to designers going into this or any do you put it in context um, about the choices they make in comparison to the people that they're working with or in context to how it's gonna how it's gonna how it's gonna be viewed in 5 10 15 years <laughs> from now uh, I guess I've sort of never had to because the people that I'm bringing in, you know, for me to give them advice would would be arrogant to say the least. But if I had to give advice to a designer who's looking at doing a show house in their city, I think, you know, it takes a lot of time. It's very expensive. It's very time consuming. And so I think I would be true to yourself, but also, you know, work with the clients if there are clients and call in your, you know, team and your um, uh, that, you know, you're going to call in brands you use and vendors you use because it can be really expensive. And if you know, and and if you're giving business to you know one wallpaper hanger or one upholsterer or one whomever, call them you know and ask for that favor because if it gets you business, it's going to get them business. And if they're smart, they're going to get it. So you know, try to make it as you know cheap for yourself if you can, but still be proud of it. Um, think big, but don't think you know. Uh, you know, too great. I mean, what what I did at, at at Small Space Big Style. I mean, it was a bit bold. It was a bit forward. It certainly wasn't for everyone. Perhaps you can show the photos uh, on this podcast. But uh, you know, I think make a statement, but be tasteful at the same time. Like Michael Berman, the porthole is a statement. That wall is a statement. But it's still something that that you could live with. And I think if you want to get business out of it, you know, make it what you would want to live with because that's what you do. So I would say almost treat yourself as the client if you can and just do what you like, you know, what makes you and your brand unique? What would you want to live this with if it was your home? And probably someone's going to walk in and also want to live with it if you've done that for yourself. Tell me about some of the partners that you've worked with and sure. some of the sponsors throughout the house. Uh, we've had amazing partners. We have Gen Air doing the appliances with their new collection. Uh, the black interior of the refrigerator Stunning. is so forward-thinking. I compare it to like the sexy cabin of, of a Virgin Atlantic jet versus you know Southwest with the lighting. Like it is just so beautifully sexy, so obvious too. Like why hasn't someone done this? Um, but they're the first. Corian is really fun. It's such a mid-century marvel. They did all of our countertops. Um, you know. It's, I, th I think it's on brand for Palm Springs because it goes back to the you know 50s and 60s when these great masters of design you know whether you know it's Mies earlier than that or the Eames or you know whomever they were futurists and thinkers and using new technology you know using new technology inventing things that hadn't been done so we actually used Corian solid surface the classic mid-century material like on Keith's uh, powder room you know it looks like onyx but it's corian and that's great and then we use their cords throughout the house on countertops so corian's been wonderful dun edwards paints is such a california brand uh they're so wonderful and rock mill stone really came in with a lot of flooring as did crossville inc and some of the tiles on display and walker zanger and michael's bathroom again back to that icon mr berman i mean that's all his new collection for walker zanger and everything he does just knocks it out of the park so i could go on and on but i'll stop because every partner is world-class and that's so great too is to call brands I know and love and what's also just uh, such a blessing for me is to meet the people behind the brands you know as as you know, just Mr. You know, just in my firm, I don't always get to interact with you know the CEO of of you know California Clauses. I would never have that access just as a specifier. But to meet the people behind the brands uh, and just to to really like them as much as the brand themselves makes it really special for me. Let me back up a second. This was really the first gathering of the design influencer and innovator group. This group 
as it's, as it's now known, is a series of events that include designers, architects, and others from the design and architecture industry for the purpose of networking in a meaningful way, sharing information, and helping each other do better work while making more for that work. A novel concept, right? Since the first gathering in Palm Springs uh, last January, over 70 creatives have participated and shared their experience. This is Christy Nelson from an event at the Tadeli showroom in the Pacific Design Center. I'm seeing a real shift back toward um, interiors at spaces in general that have real ambiance, that are unique, that have color, that have a sense of place in a way that we haven't seen in quite a while where things were, everything was, say, mid-century modern or recently... Um, boho has been a big, big trend. Um, and I think people are starting to get really tired of seeing these overarching design themes. And we're starting to see a real shift back to individuality. People bringing in things from their past, from their present. They're not so worried about, well, what's, what's cool or what am I seeing everywhere now? It's more about what matters to me. I'm seeing a lot more ambiance coming into spaces. Even in uh, architecture, I'm seeing that there's a shift toward things having more individuality instead of, okay, I'm always gonna see an iron window. I'm gonna see, you know, these five things are gonna make up what is gonna be a new build somewhere. There's a lot more thought, a lot more detail, a lot more personal inspiration that's coming in and really making people, I think, feel comforted and I think especially in the times that we've been dealing with in the last several years that that sort of comfort going back to cocooning almost of the whatever early aughts we're seeing a lot of resurgence of that again. Next up is Michelle Salt-Smith from a dig event at the Tadeli showroom in Newport Beach. You know we're getting bombarded with trends our clients are coming to us asking about particular trends. Uh, I would say the trend is going back to antiquity in some ways and embracing patina, you know, so it's not everything, not every finish has to be pristine and new. I think clients are getting more comfortable using timeless materials that are going to age gracefully, like a marble in the kitchen, um, steel that's going to patina and weather. So I think what I've observed is that um, there's more of a prevalence of using authentic maker's movement type finishes and pieces. Here's Gary Gibson from another dig event at the Ornare showroom in the West Hollywood Design District. I think that's a tough question in today's market because I think the whole industry is in a transition. My showroom is almost 20 years old and I started that because I my passion for collecting but it was more about I saw the industry changing then where people go, well, there's a retail showroom here and there's a retail thing here that's just diminishing our business to the trade. And I go, well, but that's progress, so to speak. Industries evolve and they change. And here we are 20 years later and everyone's talking about social media and retail and online. And, and I think it's time to reinvent ourselves again. Now, I'm not sure what the next iteration is myself, because I'm trying to figure it out, because I think brick and mortar in general is having a hard time. And I think trade shows 
are having a hard time. I think it's expensive for someone to come from New York to do a show, let's say a West Edge show, and do a booth, transport their product, set it up. What is the return? Is the return great enough to do it? I think it goes back to what does each individual, their passion, their drive, their pocketbook have to make it work? Because, because I think a lot of times people, I see product or venues and I'm like, well, I don't think there's much of a market for that. And you just probably spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to be in the show. And, and why? Do, you have to do the due diligence before you start something. I mean, I did for my, for my, my store, although it was pretty... I was advised not to do it. He, Why would you open a store, my accountant said. And I said, well, I, I, I want to do it and I can afford to do it. And you and wanted to. Time. You wanted to. But it was a different time, too. These dig events are so much fun and incredibly rewarding. Speaking of rewarding, the Pasadena Showcase House for the Arts was fantastic this year. This was my third year covering the Pasadena Showcase. And... Here's what it sounded like. First, here's a clip from Robert Frank. Uh, I'm Robert Frank with Robert Frank Interiors. Which room are we in? I know we're in room 14. Right. And room 14, my room, is the master bedroom. Okay. Uh, who was who was the space designed for? When you asked that, do you mean originally? No. <laughs> oh, okay. I no. mean, who did you design it okay. for? Um, our design aesthetic kind of leans towards kind of the casual... California couple. So uh, we tend to use a light color palette and kind of neutral and casual fabrics. So it's probably for a, a, a younger couple um, that's not too fussy and wants to have a livable and, and beautiful and casual space. Did you... It's, it's interesting. There's, there's like a, a number of different schools of thought when it comes to this. Did you give names to the couple? Did you give them ages? Did you give them ethnic backgrounds, children, no children? What did they do for a living? Did, did you give them per personalities and, and personas or, or do you start with sort of the, the all-encompassing and general characteristics? Sure. Well, for Showcase House, it's a little different um, since there's not a true client. However, with, with the Showcase House, the Showcase Committee actually gives us a profile of the family that lives in the house. Um, normally when the house is actually occupied, obviously with, with a real family, we would utilize that, um, that family as our kind of jumping off point. In this case, we were given kind of a, a mock family to, to create our space for, and they were a younger couple um, who was interested in kind of a casual lifestyle um, so that's where we where we arrived at this design. And you, you talked about a number of the elements to the design, but what was what was your approach? Uh, well, because we're in Descanso Gardens, we use that um, as a big influence with our design, and that was how we kind of came up with the wall covering, which was our initial jumping off point for the design. Uh, it's actually uh, inspired by the Camellia Gardens in Descanso Garden and we had it hand-painted by Gracie Studios and then kind of designed the room around that element um, because our goal was to basically bring the outdoors indoors. The La Cienega Design Quarters Legend event was a blast this year, so much fun. I had the chance to interview 38 of the 43 designers who crafted some of the astounding showroom windows. I actually rode my bike between La Cienega from Santa Monica Boulevard to Melrose by the PDC. 
almost got hit about five times. And if you were down there, you saw me like an idiot riding my bike with all of my gear on it from showroom to showroom. But it had to be done. All in all, I covered about 80 miles during the week. And earlier in this episode, you heard Patrick Dragonette mention some of the amazing designers. So I wanted you to hear from them as well. Here they are. First up is Alex Papacristides. You know, I adore LA and, 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 and I think LCDQ is such a wonderful event and it brings designers from all over the country to Los Angeles and it's a wonderful opportunity to come and see and shop LA. There's so many wonderful stores, so many great vendors and I think it's just a wonderful excuse to be here. And you know, when you're a decorator and you're busy, it's hard to find the time to go on vacation and do things. So when you have a project or you have a discipline and you need to go and do a window in Los Angeles, you come here and you do it and you get to spend time in Los Angeles. So it's a win-win for me. My work is my pleasure. So it's always a bit of vacation for me and I go to amazing places and I work with wonderful people. So I'm lucky to love what I do and I always have a good time wherever I am. And I make it fun for myself, for my clients, for the vendors. Life is short and we should be happy and have fun doing everything we do. Jeffrey Benison. And he has always been sort of a wonderful decorator to me because, first of all, I've always loved his fabrics. And my first apartment, I used his fabrics all over my living room. Actually, not my first apartment, but my, my second apartment. It was, my first apartment was out of college. My second apartment was, was all in Benison fabrics, my living room. And I've always loved his work, and he and I have, I think there's a lot of overlap. We love sort of lush interiors that are very rich and opulent, and he also has the same love for animals that I have. In his interiors, he puts sort of, you know, there's always a camel or a monkey or something wonderful, and I love animals, and I love bringing nature in from the outside, sort of organic elements that are decorative, and I've always loved what he does. Jeffrey Benison and I have a wonderful, you know, I, I love his sensibility and his style and we have a great rapport. And so he felt appropriate for me. I'm, I'm, I love the history of decorating and I've always sort of looked to the great decorators for inspiration. And I'm quite familiar with his style and his interiors through a multitude of books, through history and I started obviously with using venison fabric because I thought that was the perfect way to bring me into the right direction. Well, it's always a challenge, of course, you know. And, you know, having a client, not having a client, sometimes it's a bigger challenge to actually not have a client because it's all about yourself and then sometimes it works out beautifully. But I think I, 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 I wanted to make it my own because I used a venison fabric, but I cut it up. So the fabric behind us has a stripe on it that I removed. And it's, it's something that I've always done, and I learned that sort of through the history of decorating, and the great European decorators have always cut borders and pasted fabrics together and reseamed them and made them their own. So I started with that. And then, you know, I loved the idea of the blue and the black and the gold, and I found the chinoiserie desk. And, you know, I wanted the, the, the oriental carpet and the gilded chair. And then the lamp is Christopher Spitzmiller, which I make. It's the Alex lamp for Christopher. He makes for me. It's the Christopher Spitzmiller lamp for Alex. And it's my shape. So, again, it, it brings in something of me. And, you know, it's, it's all the kind of whimsy and the things that I love brought together. I love French furniture. I love chinoiserie. I love gilding. I love prints. I love layering. 
you know, I made the blotter, I made the tissue necessary for the room. I flew over the little wicker waste basket because again, there's that kind of very sort of natural and high and low, and that's what I think is so divine. You know, the use of a little wicker basket under an 18th century chinoiserie desk. This is Jeff Andrews. We're here at Dragonette installing our window for LCDQ, which is quite a feat. Um, I think I might have gotten a little overambitious, but it's like go big or go home is my motto. So we're not really creating a room, we're creating like an experience um, all based on, on the work of Billy Haynes. Yeah, everything, but when you do a window like this, it's so different from doing a, a house or a room that we normally get to do every day. Like it's, it's time to like go into more fantasy land and make something that is exceptionally um, different from, from regular interior design work. I think LCDQ is so cool because it's when once a year, all the designers come together and converge in, in one place with a common goal of just enjoying each other and you know sitting down and having great conversation and looking at the work that people have done on the windows and it's like it's really just a celebration of design i selected billy haynes because his innate sense of style and his, his the fact that he was self-taught as a designer and his work was so captivating in in old hollywood and the the old hollywood glamour that he created was so original and really speaks to me and and I use elements of that in my design all the time. I'm not really sure that I'm channeling Haynes. I think it's more of an homage to Haynes. So I'm using a lot of things that are that are from my own collections, like my own wallpaper and uh, fabric and furniture, and just kind of playing homage to um, something that he would think is the new glamour rather than old Hollywood glamour. So um, hopefully he's gonna look down on me and really like what I'm doing. I mean, I think, I think everybody approaches it differently, and you're right, some people would recreate something that, that the person that they're honoring would have done. To me, it's just a matter of pulling um, inspiration from their body of work, because they are design icons, and people that, that designers, the, even now, today, we pull inspiration from people from the past, because they're, they set the tone for things that have, have trickled into, into what design is today. But for me, I choose to just go more theatrical with it, and more cinematic and and create something that is um, a visual impact uh, for the person just looking out the window so I feel like it's it's pulling all kinds of um, kind of like um, creativity and design and advertising like it's all it's all coming together because it is it is something like that it's something that a window design is something that should sell something so that's the way that I choose to approach it I think his um, like Billy Haynes had a really great uh, sense of proportion and scale and shape and style and the way that he combined things to make things extremely glamorous and, and also livable is what I'm really drawn to um, with him as a designer. Next up is Pate Lau. Hi, my name is Pate Lau and my firm is Pate Lau Inc. And where are we today? What showroom? Today we are here at Harbinger. It's one of my favorite showrooms here at the uh, La Cienega Design Quarter. And I shop here a lot, and it's been a fabulous experience. What does what LCDQ and Legends mean to you and to the design community in general? LCDQ has been such an important design 
week in LA and it was one of the times I think a couple years ago I had came I had come here to LA before I actually started working in Los Angeles because I live in I was living in New York I recently moved to LA and um, it was just an opportunity where you had to meet so many amazing West Coast designers and editors from New York it's basically like spring break for designers <laughs> Everyone comes here. It's such a fun festivity. Everyone gets a chance to mingle and connect and just really build, build this amazing community that we have. I love that. It's like spring break for designers. Totally. It's totally spring break for designers. <laughs> it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. Um, so tell me about the, the icon that you selected. Who did you select? So my icon is David Hicks, and he was the first person that I had picked out of the legendary. He is a huge influence in a lot of my work. I think, and I truly believe, um, I have a style called Aristo Freak and he really is an Aristo Freak. An Aristo Freak to me is someone that has the ability to really, you know, have traditions, but really think outside of the box of the tradition, really break the molds. I think a lot of, every good designer will always have um, rooted history in their traditions and patterns. Um, and I think, David Hicks had this incredible mix of just panache. You know, he really designed with, um, you know, just such pa bold patterns and colors. And even today, when you're looking at his work, I think a lot of influences are still being inspired today. He was the king of pattern mixing. And I definitely feel like I use a lot of patterns and colors to tell my story when I design. What do you think it is? Hold for a second. Mm -hmm. Am I moving? Yeah, a little bit. Sorry. Can we back up a little bit? Mm -hmm. Perfect. What do you, what do you think it, it is about the work? What made the work so special, so iconic? My work? His work. Oh. What makes David Hicks' work so iconic is that he, I think, as I got to discover a little bit more about him, just beside his actual designs, I learned that he was a he was already mixing like high and low at the time. He was kind of a scrapper. You know, he grew up, his, his story is so interesting because he kind of grew up as a common person and um, was, had a very, you know, was very charming, had a lot of taste, was very intelligent. And then of course he fell in love with uh, Lady Mountbatten, which is Dickie Mountbatten, uh, Prince Charles's godfather, I believe. Um, was you know was a royalty and basically married into that family and obviously he was already quite an influential designer at the time that they had married and but he had the ability and access to have some of the most incredible properties he was you know on a plane with the shake and designing all these incredible spaces but he was always quite scrappy and doing designs with you know he would figure out something and and just kind of figure like you know, do a, a, a detail of like a, a trim and, you know, like that could be $5 or five pounds or whatever it was. And then he would apply it. But it was it was his aesthetic and how he looked at design, which was really important. And I think design is very much about a style. You know, everyone has a very particular taste or techniques. But I think he just had this like panache of just understanding and he was bold and he was, you know, he had a very interesting point of view. Um, and I think that many people still really look up to him as a legendary designer. So how did, knowing that that's how he worked and knowing that he was the icon you selected to, to make this window special and unique, how did you channel him in your, in your work? 
That's a really great question because when I was asked to do Legends, I was so thrilled because you know it's been such an influential uh, part of my design, um, you know, a community being you know especially since I just moved to LA and I was like this is my LA debut, and um, so I was really honored to be a part of it. And secondly, I was really nervous because everyone is judging you obviously, and I was like, what do I do? And you know, I didn't want to necessarily like design a space that looked or was like mimicking him, so I had to really think about what I was doing. How do I interpret David Hicks into the work that I do, but that still very much has my aesthetic, that still has very much his traditions and his ideas. So I really played on with the pattern mix. The wallpaper is actually my own Aristofreak wallpaper that I created, which is a African mudcloth inspired fabric that I had found. And then I channeled it with different colors. I've done different colorways and I scaled it to make it the right size and I printed it on paper weave. So I really wanted to start with the wallpaper. And then of course I use Murph Studios to do the caning on the floor with a lot of pattern. And sometimes it was kind of challenging because I was nervous that maybe, you know, the pattern mixing was the scale you know scale is so important and I thought maybe it wasn't enough but so far everything is turning out really well this is Nicole Fuller hi my name is Nicole Fuller and my firm is Nicole Fuller interiors and we have offices in New York and in Los Angeles and where are we today we are in Los Angeles sunny LA (laughs) name of the showroom we're at uh, gallery Carol Decombe and this is the gallery that I'm doing my beautiful window in, and she is just the most wonderful woman on the planet, and it's a love fest from the beginning, so all is well. So tell me about LCDQ, what it means to you as a designer and the design community. This is my first year uh, doing Legends, but the design community is the utmost backbone of our entire industry. And I think that what Patrick and the board and everyone has done at LCDQ has been incredible. It's been a build over the years, and I think each year it's just getting better and better, and more and more people are coming, and it's very exciting times. And to be here now and honoring, you know, such iconic designers that have been an inspiration for myself and my colleagues, and and just you know, most people that you know have a love or interest in art or creativity is quite um, is quite wonderful, and it's very humbling and. And um, I feel grateful. That was so much fun. I, I absolutely love the event this year. This brings us to the home stretch for 2019, the West Edge Design Fair, where Convo by Design was once again the presenting sponsor of the Programming Lounge. A full three days of panels, keynotes, and elevated conversations. Over 65 creatives, 15 panels, and 20 hours of programming in a space designed by Nicolette Akiko of Studio Akiko, John McLean of John McLean Designs and Kevin Isbell of Kevin Isbell Interiors. You'll hear all of these panels and conversations in 2020, so make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. But here's a little bit from the Convo by Design Programming Lounge at the West Edge Design Fair. First up is Gene Brownhill. Like I said, I think it's like a defect. Okay, so, but if that's, <laughs> if that's the case then, why did it take so long between the, yeah. the moment you first ideated the concept and when you launched it in 11. Yeah, so uh, I actually did two other businesses doing the same idea. So I was trying to figure out how do you bring high quality construction and design resources to regular people? That was like the problem I was trying to solve. I tried two other companies in that same period of time. And so 
I was definitely working, working, working on cracking this. It just took me a while to really understand from a homeowner side, like what they really needed, from a general contractor side, what they really needed. So it was actually through conversations after those first two businesses or those first two ideas didn't work that sitting down with those customers, so I had like a few customers left, and I was like, okay, let me buy you coffee. I promise I am not going to talk. I am just going to listen to you. Tell me what I didn't do. Tell me why I didn't solve your problems. And what could I have done that would have been helpful? And then I, and sat there. And it was out of those conversations that the business model for Sweeten came about. So homeowner said, I need you to stay with me through the whole project. I don't just need information. I need you there for from the very beginning till the very end. I have so many questions. I have so many like anxieties. You just giving me one piece of information or one design inspiration is not enough. And then on the general contractor side, they were saying, um, I am so tired of like lead gen or people who say that they're going to help me to grow my business. If you bring me real work, if you get that work awarded to me, I'm happy to pay you. And, and bonus, if you can help me actually complete that project faster, even better. Do you remember, were those the two things? Those were the two things. Those were the only two things. I mean, there was like lots of other like specifics in there, but that was the really, those, you know, like the, the signal that started to like resonate through all those conversations. Those were the two main signals. So how did, how did you adjust? What was the, did you have to pivot or was it just an adjustment? So, um, it, it was, it was a business model adjustment. It was, I mean, it was everything. So the way Sweeten works is a homeowner comes to our site, they post a project on our site, we match them with one of our vetted general contractors, and once that project is awarded, we track it all the way to completion. So in the beginning, that meant like an account manager, and you still get an account manager that will track your project, but now you also have a bunch of platform tools where you can have all of your you know, um, milestones connected to payments, you can have your all your payments flow through the platform, you can have all your communications, you can have everything centralized in one place so that you really do feel supported from the very beginning to the end. And that's, that's what they asked for. <laughs> that's what they asked for and that's what you delivered. And so in the last, what, eight years, yeah. how do you refine? So we, again, so we, we started at the very hardest point and grew out from there, right? So to get a homeowner to come to our site, to trust us, to meet with our general contractors, to hire that general contractor, that was the really, really hard part. So getting someone to say, yes, I will part with you know $100,000 or even $10,000, it is a ton of money. And it's people, again, like people have saved up, not only have they saved up for a home, but now they finally have the money to make it their own, to make it really feel like theirs. That is hard money to part with. And so we focused in right at that moment and our business model and everything else kind of centralized around that. So we only get paid from our general contractors when they are awarded projects through our platform. 
And then everything else just grew out of that. So now we have, you know, a bunch of algorithms working to help us to pre-screen not only general contractors, but also homeowners to figure out how to match, to figure out how to track projects, you know, to really understand like the, the data component of it, to make that data available to our homeowners so that we can share pricing information, we can benchmark timelines, we can benchmark general contractors against each other. All of that came out of that one, getting that one moment right. This is Brigham Jane. So interesting to me. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find as a young African-American woman is most of my clientele is middle-aged, Caucasian, and male. That's who pays me. That's what I grew my female-based company <laughs> off of. Um, and I think that it... There's a lot of leadership opportunity being in a minority position in anything because you understand the responsibility of standing up for what isn't popular or common thought or seems outside of the box, right? So I find that I'm constantly pushing my boundaries on cultural references that I want to bring into design elements. And if I'm like, I'm too scared to, you know, use this Cuban thing or this Tongan thing because I might not know every inch of it, I notice that I push myself a lot in doing what's uncomfortable because I think at a certain level, that's why we're not seeing enough of it. People are always scared to merge what they don't know and they're afraid of asking the wrong question or offending somebody or, and when you do that, that creates the division. I think all of us see the word diversity and we're scared of it to begin with because it, it comes with this divide Whereas we are in an artistic, you know, medium, good design pushes the rules. Like when we walk through here and we see all of the things that we love, it's because they're a little unusual, not because it's the common norm. So I find that this is a great place to be in in sort of celebrating diversity. And I think that a lot of times that person, or for me on the commercial side, they are longing for somebody to push them in what you know their building looks like. And they might not be the representative to do it. So they depend on designers to sort of bring in this habitat that, you know, is just in New York City. And you look at the amount of people interacting with a space. And as a designer, I want that to feel the same no matter what age, race, you know, you are. And so when you're creating a space that's inclusive of everyone, especially in commercial spaces, you want a representative who's not going to be afraid to include everybody. And, and I think that puts a lot of responsibility on all of us as humans to create habitats that work for anyone. That is a wrap on this episode of Convo by Design, featuring clips from the design events of 2019. Thank you to the fine folks at KBiz, Modernism Week, LCDQ, SIA, Pasadena Showcase House for the Arts, the Design Influencer and Innovator Group, and the West Edge Design Fair. What a spectacular year in design from some of the most inspiring events. It's, it's all part of what makes Los Angeles and Southern California a world-class design and architecture destination. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading, subscribing, emailing, and coming out to our events. Without you, there, there really is no Convo by Design. Please follow the podcast on Instagram 
Convo by Design with an X, and make sure you subscribe everywhere you find your favorite podcast. That way, you'll receive new episodes on your mobile device the moment they're published. You know, you can also ask Siri or Alexa to play Convo by Design. Just say, hey Siri, play Convo by Design. And she will. It's amazing. This is also a wrap on 2019. It's been a spectacular year, and next year is going to be an even better one. Not just for Convo by Design, but for you too. Set your goals, make your plan, recharge those batteries, and buckle up, because 2020 is coming, and you're going to punch it in the face. You are. It's going to be a great one. Happy holidays, and until next year, keep creating. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vondam Furniture. Their design culture is the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vondam pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest. Vondam products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted modern durable molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique. They beg to be enjoyed. Have you seen them featured in our videos? Check out our YouTube channel and see this for yourself. You can also find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in Los Angeles, or online at vondam.com. 